If you would, please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. First Kings chapter 3. Up to this point in the book, David has died. God has established Solomon on the throne. So in chapter 3 we get a glimpse of what kind of king Solomon might be. First Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I should give you. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you've not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. And then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. And there was no one else with us in the house. And 
we too, only we too were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she laid on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. And when I, woke, when I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. And thus they spoke before the king. And then the king said, the one says, this is my son that, I, that is alive and, and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. And so a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. And then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you've not uh, left us without your word, but you've given it to us. And we pray tonight, O oh Lord, that by your spirit, you would use your word to make us better disciples. Uh, we pray, Lord, that our affections for Christ Jesus would be nurtured. We pray that our trust in your promises and in who you say that you are would be deeply increased. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've all had those experiences in life uh, that turned out better than we perceived they might turn out. Uh, for some of us, maybe that was a pumpkin spice latte or a white chocolate mocha. For some of us, uh, perhaps that was uh, the national championship. For some of us, maybe not so much. Um, for some of us, maybe it was that meeting that your boss said, hey, I want to talk to you. We need a meeting. And so you there, you know, you sit forever how long, right? Whether it be weeks or days or hours and you have these ideas about how the meeting's going to go and then, and then you go and it turns out wonderfully well. Or maybe for some of us, maybe it's that diaper that you can smell all the way across the room and so you get out all the wipes and you open the diaper and there's nothing there. Like that, that turned out way better than I anticipated it would turn out. We've all had those experiences that, that turn out a lot better than, than we conceived they might turn out. And I think this chapter, chapter 3, kind of helps us to understand God a little bit better. And I think it actually tweaks our understanding 
and, and we're able to, to understand that, that he's better than we think he is. Right? We all have our preconceived ideas about who God is, and, and hopefully those are you know, informed by Scripture and, and, and are constantly being reformed by Scripture, but sometimes they're not. Lots of times they're informed by experience, or lots of times they're informed by how other people have treated us. And so we take that idea of how we've been treated by other people and apply it to God and say, oh, that must be what God is like. Sometimes, or most of the time, these operate not really in the forefront of our minds, but kind of in the back. And they inform everything that we do and how we pray and how we act and how we, how we perceive who God is. But sadly, when our ideas of who God is are formed not by Scripture, but by these other things, we probably perceive God to be not as good as He actually is. We forget, it's really easy to forget, all the ways in which God has been good to us. And it's really easy to remember all the ways in which we think that he's failed us. But I think this passage maybe challenges some of those negative preconceptions about who God is. And I think it proves, again, that God is better than we think he is. And the first way it does that is is that it shows us that, that God is there when we wouldn't expect him to be there. God is with his people when we really wouldn't expect him to be with his people. Chapter chapter 3 opens with a, a handful of verses of just like mixed feelings. Verse 1, we learn that that Paul, I mean sorry, that, that Solomon forms a marriage alliance with Pharaoh king of Egypt. And on the one hand, that 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 should take us aback like wow. Israel used to be the, the you know a family a, a person right Israel used to be Abraham and his family and now it, God has grown and nurtured Israel and given her her own land and increased her in number so much that she's making marriage alliance she's making alliances with Pharaoh king of Egypt like she's in that category of nation like that's that's amazing but on the other hand Solomon's making a marriage alliance with Pharaoh king of Egypt Just a few hundred years ago, the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt. And remember back in Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 and 3, God God warned the people of Israel, don't intermarry with other nations. Why? Because number one, it's going to lead you to idolatry. Number two, it's going to lead you to apostasy. So on the one hand, we're like, wow, Israel's grown. They're big boys. But on the other hand, we're like, Oof, that didn't look so good. Questionable circumstances, to, to put it in its best light. And then in verse 2, we learn that Israel's worshiping at the high places. Verses 3 and 4, we learn that Solomon's worshiping at the high places. And again, you know, there, perhaps there's an excuse for this, that the temple was not yet built. That's obvious. But on the other hand, like, why are they not worshiping God like he commanded them to worship God? Like, why, why is Solomon and the people of Israel not, not worshiping at the tabernacle? Why, why are they not, why are they doing it in the high places? Again, 
more questionable circumstances. And so we ask the question right here at the beginning of chapter 3, if you only read up to verse 4, ask yourself, would you expect God to appear to someone at this moment in time? Like, these are shady circumstances, questionable circumstances. We've got Solomon, you know, kind of not being a great leader. He's entering into uh, a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Like, what did he have to give in return for Pharaoh's daughter? Not only that, but he's, he's worshiping at the high places, and so Israel's following. They're worshiping at the high places as well, which later on in the book of Kings, we're going to find that's a big problem. Like, at this point in chapter 3, would we expect God to appear to Solomon? No. It should surprise us that God does appear to Solomon. But he does. Verse 5, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I should give you. So while Solomon is at Gibeon making offerings on the high places, there's all kinds of wrong things there, God appears to him. It's almost like, again, these two things shouldn't go together. These two things shouldn't be happening at the same time. But is this really, I mean, is this surprising if we've read our Bibles from cover to cover? Not, not really. God does this all the time. It's surprised, but it, but it does surprise us on, on another level that God does appear to him here. God is there. God appears to Solomon. God is there when we don't expect him to be there. Think about the book of Judges. God was there for the people of Israel time after time after time after time to pull them out of their slavery, to pull them out of the mess that they themselves got themselves into. Think about Jesus and Peter. Jesus is there. Who's there to pick up Peter's mess, to pick him up after He's just, you know, ruined his Christian life, it seems. It's Jesus. Jesus is there. The same, thing's, the same thing's true for the church today. The same thing's true for us as Christians today. God is, God is there when we are at our ugliest. Right? God's there when, when we are so far in a mess that we can't get our own selves out. God is there, God is there in our doubts. God is there when we're second-guessing becoming a Christian in the first place, perhaps because of persecution, right? Or perhaps because of suffering. Like, I I didn't suffer that much before I became a Christian. Now I suffer all the time. It's like, maybe I I don't know. God's there in those moments. God's even there when when we're angry at Him because, because He's letting our lives fall apart. And he's not just there in the sense of being present. But he's there ready to talk about what he can do for you. right? How he can can help you. How he can meet your needs before you are even aware that you need anything. To put it another way, he's there and he's generous. He's, He's there being way more generous than you'd expect him to be, which is exactly what we see with Solomon here. I love how how God appears to Solomon before he's even acknowledged 
the fact that he needs anything. And God basically says, let's have a conversation about what you need from me to do what you've been appointed and established to do. Right? What do you need? What do you need from me? Just ask. Just ask. It's, it's like a blank check. God's giving him a blank check. Ask for anything that you need and I'll give it to you. Right? Even though, Solomon, you're, you're, you're kind of in dangerous territory. This is not a good trajectory maybe that you're on considering the first part of chapter 3. Even though you've done nothing yet to, to earn my generosity. Even though I know how your story ends not good God's saying ask whatever you want I'll give it to you and I love how Solomon responds his basic response is God since you have fulfilled all of your promises I don't know how to be king you notice that Solomon basically includes in his response since you've fulfilled your, your promises to Abraham to grow the people, to make this people into a great people, into a multitude, mentioned three different times. And since you fulfilled your promises to David, right, to put one of his sons, me, on the throne, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. In other words, because God has been faithful, it's kind of, it's kind of funny, because God has been faithful Solomon's like, I don't know, this people's too great, I don't know how to handle them. But how does God respond? Well, God responds by giving Solomon exactly what he asked for, which was wisdom. Verse 12, God promises to give Solomon wisdom, and not just any kind of wisdom, but wisdom over and above anything, anyone that's ever come before him or will come after him, excepting the Lord Jesus God promises to give him what he didn't ask for, riches and honor and long life if, he, if he's obedient to the covenant commandments. Right, if we just slow down for a second and look at, at what God is promising in response to Solomon's asking, we can't help but realize just how generous, just how generous God is. We so often as Christians think that, that God deals out his generosity with a dropper. Right? One of those droppers, you, you pinch the end, you pull up a little bit of liquid, and you get there's a drop here, there's a drop here, there's a drop here, there's a drop here. Everybody gets one drop. But what's God what's God doing here? God's got the cap off and the bottle upside down, and he's just hard pouring it on top of Solomon's head. Here, take it. Uh, you know, he's just pouring out his blessings. Upon Solomon. God is, is, is extremely generous. And he gives not Solomon not just what he asked for, but what he asked for on an exponentially high level, plus everything that he didn't ask for. And so let's pause for a minute and, and, and ask you know, is, Do I view God, is, is my view of God's generosity? Does it match this one? Right, is this how I have experienced God to be in my life? Has God really been generous to me? How has he been generous to me? 
take a minute and, and think about some answers to that question and perhaps we can come up with some pretty good answers, some solid answers, right? He's given his own son to deliver me from my sins. He's given me, a, me personally, a beautiful family. He's given me a, a wonderful church. He's provided every one of my needs. And these are, these are good answers. These are true answers. That they really do answer the question, how has, those are all wonderful ways in which God has been generous to me. But, but, but past that, some of us really find it hard to think of anything else. Maybe we're having a hard time thinking of just of those simple things. Right. How has God been generous to me? Perhaps some of us are struggling with coming up more than, with more than two or three answers to that question. I'm going to venture to a guess and say that the reason for that is because you're probably in pain or suffering or affliction in some way, shape, form, or fashion right now. And when you're hurting, it's hard to feel and hear and listen to about how God is generous. Right? When we're in pain, it's hard to think of ways in which God has been generous to us. And if we didn't know any better, we'd say the reason for that is because our experience doesn't seem to match up with the promises of God in Scripture. Right? My experience of pain right now doesn't match up with the reality that God is generous. Right? Since, my, since I'm, I'm struggling, since I'm suffering, it doesn't seem like God has been generous to me. And if that's, if that's you, if that's me, let me ask you. Have you ever tried to put pain and suffering and affliction in the category of a gift from God instead of neglect from God? Right? Have you ever considered the fact that if, if, if God is sovereign, right, and he has ordained my suffering, if he has ordained my pain and my affliction, have you ever, have you ever tried to put that into the category of a gift and not in the category of neglect. Now, it's not an easy thing to do. I'll tell you that firsthand. But 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 what if instead of mourning our suffering, instead we, we really tried hard to count it as joy? And then from that perspective, right? If my sufferings are a gift from God, and if I really work hard, and if I really try to, to, to put those into the category of, of gifts from God, and to count them as joy, and from that perspective, let, let's ask the question again, how has God been generous to me, even in the midst of pain and suffering? Has he... Has he grown your faith in Christ through your pain? Has he grown your affections for Christ? Do you love Christ 
more? Is he, is, he, is he more of a treasure to your heart on this side of pain and suffering? Right? Has he matured you as a Christian? Has he shown you tangibly in ways that you didn't think you could ever see that his promises, his promises are actually true? Have you grown to, to depend upon the Lord more instead of all the other gifts that the Lord has given you that are around you? I would, I would venture to say that if you're a Christian and you're suffering, you've, you've probably got some really great answers to all of those questions. And if I were to ask you if you would trade those for the pain and suffering, you'd probably say no. God's generosity is not confined to gifts with an expiration date like wealth and riches and health and long life. God's generosity is not confined to those, those physical gifts that have expiration dates on them. God's generosity even extends to spiritual gifts like the fruits of the Spirit. How He prepares his people to spend eternity with him how he cultivates joy in his people and not not just simply makes them happy he does that but he cultivates joy so we don't need to undervalue god's generosity born out in the fruit of the spirit because that's the generosity that will stick with us through the new heavens and new earth We realized in the, in the previous passage in chapter 2, and we realize here even there's an emphasis on it, a heavy emphasis on it here in chapter 3, that, that God makes promises, but he also keeps promises. And he not only keeps promises in the life to come, but he also keeps his promises in the here and now. And that's what we see with Solomon. God promised Solomon wisdom, among other things, wealth and health and riches and uh, so on and so forth. And he, not, he doesn't just fulfill those prayers in the new heavens and new earth. He also fulfills those prayers and primarily fills, fulfill those, fulfills those prayers in the here and now. Right? In the right now. We have a tendency as the people of God to, to hear the promises of God and automatically put them into the category to file them away somewhere in a back dark corner of our minds. File them away as will be fulfilled in the new heavens, new earth. Right, that's the file that we have. Will be fulfilled in the new heavens, new earth. We hear the promises of God. We automatically put them in there and don't touch them any longer. I'm guilty. And so if I were to ask you, Christian, or if I were to ask myself, you know, if God were faithful, does he actually keep his promises? I would say, yes, absolutely he does. And then if I poked a little bit harder and I was like, all right, well, how does he, uh, what about Romans eight twenty eight that God works all things for good? If I were to ask you, how does he keep that promise? You would tell me, I would tell you, uh, well, he's certainly going to keep that promise uh, in the new heavens, and new earth, right? All things are ultimately working for good. It's one of the hopes, one of the promises that we have in a sovereign God who loves his people is that he actually does work all things for good. But we, we tend to, to think of that good as being only ultimate and only later. But is that what we see 
Is that how we see God fulfilling his promises here? When, when we say that he will fulfill his promises later, we're not wrong. That's, that's not wrong. That's absolutely correct. But how does he do that here and now? Well, we see that exemplified in the, the case study in the latter part of the chapter where God actually shows himself to give Solomon wisdom. So the situation is two prostitutes come to Solomon. Both of them had babies at the same time. Three days later, they were sleeping. One of the moms rolled over on her child. child suffocated. She then switched that child with the other prostitute's child who was living. And they argue about it. They can't come to a solution whose child is whose. So they bring the situation to Solomon. And what makes this situation so difficult, and the text mentions it two or three times, is that there are no witnesses. So there's nobody, we can't go back on the security camera and say, well, who switched whose baby with who? There was nobody else that witnessed the, the thing either. There's nobody who can say, I saw this woman get up at night and switch her baby with the other one. There are no witnesses. So there's, it's all, it seems as if, I mean, this is, this is a really difficult, this is not a case that I want to end up in my office. This is not a case that I want to be a judge on at court either. Like, I mean, this is, this is impossible. There's no lie detector test. There's no way to, to figure out who's telling the truth, who's not telling the truth. Except for Solomon's divinely granted wisdom. The perfect lie detector. So Solomon says, bring me a sword. I'll cut the child in half. Half to each woman. You'll go away. You have the same, same thing. Each of you get the same thing. But Solomon, with his divinely granted wisdom knew he could see into the heart of the the real mother that she would rather her child spend his life with this wicked woman than to see her child perish before her eyes and solomon banks on the mother the heart of a mother that loves her child And the point of that part of the narrative is to say God gave Solomon exactly what he asked for. Solomon asked for wisdom. God gave Solomon wisdom. Solomon admitted he was weak. There was no way he could lead such a great people. He was young. There was no way that the people would look up to him and follow him. And he gets all of those things. He gets the wisdom. He gets the riches and the, the long life in the next chapter. But at, in verse 28, he gets the respect of the people. He gets everything that he asked for and more. God fulfilled his promise to Solomon to give him what he said he would give him. And perhaps now would be a great time to, to go into an application about we should, we, you know, this is a wonderful example of things to pray for, right? We should pray for wisdom, and that's exactly right. We should pray for wisdom. I pray for wisdom, especially every session meeting. <laughs> but pray for wisdom when I'm talking with you all, when I'm talking to people about their sin, their struggles, their suffering. We should pray for wisdom. 
But if there's something that I've noticed about Christ's rich since I've been here is you know how to pray. And you're diligent in doing it. And you're praying for all the right things. So I don't really want to focus my time on that. What I do want to focus my time on is just the the very simple fact that God did exactly what he said he was going to do. God kept his promises to Solomon today, like in the here and now, not in the new heavens and new earth only. God shows himself here as a God who keeps his promises inside of time and space in the here and now, not just in the new heavens and new earth. And and again, let's be honest, some of us have a really hard time believing that. Some of us, again, when we hear the promises of God, we automatically file them into to be fulfilled in the new heavens, new earth, and we're not wrong for doing that. But again, let let me push a little bit harder. How does God fulfill Romans 8.28 to work all things for good today? Not just in the new heavens, new earth. He's going to do that. I promise you he will. But how does he fulfill Romans 8.28 to work all things for good today? Again, if we're we're honest, that's a hard question to answer. Especially if we're in pain. Especially if we're in the midst of suffering. Suffering. When we're in the midst of suffering again and, and, and pain, it, it's hard to believe that God could bring about good in that moment. Because we so easily, again, equate pain with God, God's neglect, God not keeping his promises, or at least God only keeping his promises later. But again, if we reframed pain and suffering out of that category of God's neglect or God's going to do it later and into the category of suffering and pain is, is a gift from God. Then that opens up all sorts of answers to how, to how God fulfills his promises to, to, to work all things for good today. Because oftentimes pain is the means through which God actually fulfills his promises and brings them about. Like his promises to provide every need of yours according to the abundant riches in Christ Jesus. His his promises to never leave you or forsake you. His promises to, to never let your affliction outweigh your comfort. His promises to to sanctify you completely. His promises to complete the good work in you that he has begun. God uses pain to draw you closer to himself, to deepen your affections for Christ, and to drive you to depend on him. And when he does that, he is fulfilling his promises. He does lots of good through pain and suffering. Now, may not be the kind of good that, that we like, may not be the kind of good that, that we thought he was going to give us or that we would like for him to give us. But he gives us the kind of good that he knows that we need. Because he's infinitely wise. 
the picture of Solomon that we get here at the end of chapter 3 is really helpful. It serves as, as, as a landmark. It serves as, as a mile marker on a huge spectrum of what wisdom looks like. It, it serves as really a concrete example of what wisdom is. Especially when we talk about the infinite wisdom of Christ. Because as we said, Solomon gets, Solomon's the wisest person before or after him except Christ. Christ is infinitely wise. But when we say Christ is infinitely wise, that's, that's really hard for us to imagine what that actually means. What does it actually look like that Christ is infinitely wise? Well, here we get an example of what real wisdom is. Divinely granted wisdom. And if we can place this, this concrete marker of this is what wisdom looks like, then it just kind of helps us to situate the wisdom of Christ, what that looks like in our mind. Because we know that, that Solomon's wisdom is great, but Christ's wisdom is even greater. But it's also true that while Christ's wisdom is infinitely greater, He's also the one caring for my soul. He's also the one that's taking care of me. So when I say that, that God keeps his promises inside time and space and not just in the new heavens and new earth and that he does that sometimes through ordaining pain and suffering and affliction you can have confidence in the fact that he knows what he's doing. He's actually infinitely wise. He knows what he's doing by ordering the creation in the way that he has. And he knows how to take care of you. To my application with with all of this, is to encourage you not to lose hope. Not to lose hope in the midst of pain and suffering in who God actually is. Who He actually is. That He's actually better than we imagine Him being. He's better because He's there when we wouldn't expect Him to be. He's better because he's more generous than we think that he is, and he's there because he fulfills his promises, not only tomorrow, but today, and he's, he's, he's better because he's infinitely wise. He knows how to take care of me better than I know how to take care of myself. He loves me. He's going to take care of me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Pain and suffering is a reality. But you are king of the heavens and all the earth. And you're also king of our hearts. Take care of us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.